Well, I want to, at the beginning of this uh, message today, I want to invite you to picture a little four- or five-year-old girl, uh, maybe one that you're especially fond of. Or if you have grown children, imagine uh, one of your children when they were that age, a, a little girl, maybe four or five years old. And this girl in particular, you see she's been working and doing extra chores and saving her nickels and her dimes, and she's finally scraped together enough to go to the dollar store with her mom and pick out a, a little treat. And she gets a string of pearls, and they're not real pearls, mind you, they're plastic on a string of thread, but it doesn't matter to her. She looks absolutely beautiful when she wears them. And so she wears them all the time. She wears them to school, and she wears them to church with her little flowered dress, and she has a special place on her dresser that she puts them when she takes them off at night or when she's going to be playing and doesn't want something uh, to happen to them. And so after this goes on for a week or two, her father comes in and sits down on the edge of her bed and says a little prayer with her and kisses her goodnight, just like he always does. And then as he's about to get up and leave, he looks her in the eye and he says, sweetie, do you love me? And she said, well, of course I love you, daddy. She said, he says, can I have your pearls? And she thinks he's joking. So what are you going to do with my pearls? Why do you want my pearls? I don't want to give you my pearls. And he says, okay, that's fine. Kisses her on the forehead, leaves, comes back the next night. Same thing, prayer, kiss on the head. Sweetie, do you love me? Well, yes, daddy, you know I love you. Can I have your pearls? Now she realizes he's serious, and she starts to get nervous. She says, well, no, you know I love my pearls. They're like my favorite thing in the world. Why do you want my pearls? And he said, that's okay, sweetheart. Don't worry about it. Kisses her on the forehead. And leaves. The next night, comes back. Same thing. And I want to hit pause on our story here. We'll pick it up a little bit later. But it sort of sets the stage for some of the things that we're going to be talking about today in maybe a little different way. Uh, We are continuing our selfless series. We've been talking uh, predominantly in these first few messages about some of the pitfalls of our self, our false self, has been called throughout the ages, or our sin nature, our ego, our flesh. This is not the best part of us. It's the part that calls the shots a surprising amount of the time, especially before we come to faith in Christ. And remnants of it seem to smuggle their way into our lives as followers of Christ. So we've been talking about this in this series, and as the video indicates, that that for ourself to diminish creates an opportunity for the Spirit to flourish in our lives. As, as our self diminishes and decreases and the parts of us that are dominated by the ego or the sin, sin nature diminish, the Spirit can flourish within us. God's Spirit can flourish within us. And it's just as John the Baptist said when, when he was talking about Jesus, he said, I must decrease so that he May increase, And so that's what we've been talking about. And the first couple of, of weeks haven't felt like real warm fuzzies. And I, I'm, I'm sorry to say that this week may not as well. But hang in there because the next three weeks, the last three weeks, um, are much more focused on, on how we deal with this issue that we have and what we are to do with ourselves. And so I hope you'll continue. I hope you'll continue. Uh, hang in there one more week. It's been a progressive series, so if you've missed a week or two, I would encourage you to go back and listen to those. And, uh, 
and, and then we'll move on into a little happier uh, content, perhaps, in the next few weeks. And, and the reason that this is so important is that today we're going to be talking about self-sufficient existence, what it means to live a self-sufficient life, to live a self-sufficient existence where we deny our need of God, we deny our need of grace, we deny our need of forgiveness. And if we're not careful, we do this for our entire lives and we never come to faith in Christ. That's, that's one thing. The other thing that can happen, as I mentioned, is we can come to faith in Christ and yet use our new life in Christ as a way to become increasingly self-sufficient and say, well, I really don't need, I, I, I can graduate from grace. If I do it right, I'll be able to graduate from my need of grace. And so this can take the form of perfectionism. Uh, This can take the form of legalism. If I just follow all the right rules and I do it all in my own power and my own strength, then I won't need God and his grace. And yet I believe Paul David Tripp nails it on the head when he says none of us, none of us are grace graduates. We never graduate from our need of God's grace. And that's not the goal of the Christian life. In fact, the goal of the Christian life is to live in the rhythm of grace, to live in lockstep with God and His grace, moment by moment, allowing grace to transform us into the person of Christ and live as He would if He were you in your life. And if we're not careful, this emphasis on self-sufficiency, and we've talked about this starting with sort of a self-centered society. That was the first message in the series. Last week we talked about self-righteous religion, that we live in a world and we live even in church. It can take on this form of of self-righteousness rather than taking on Christ's righteousness. So we can be self-centered instead of being focused on God and on his activity in this world. And if we're not careful We can seek a self-sufficiency that will cause us to be uh, anything but generous, anything but compassionate, anything but kind, because we're really trying to be self-sufficient, and if we give our stuff away, then we may not have enough, or if we show compassion, that could come back to bite us, or if we extend kindness, we might be taken advantage of. And so if we're not careful, this emphasis on self-sufficiency can really impact our walk. It can really impact our relationship with Christ. One of my favorite authors is uh, a lady, and she wrote a book called um, The Sacred Slow, and it was all about slowing down our faith. The world is so fast-paced. And she said on one of the days, she said, self cannot satisfy self no matter how frequently it feasts. That we were not made to be self-sufficient. That our self cannot satisfy itself no matter how often it feasts. That we were made for relationships. We were made for interdependence with each other. We were made to worship God and to be recipients of His grace and His favor and to live in a relationship with Him. That we were not meant to be an end to ourselves. We were not meant to be self-sufficient. In fact, independence is an illusion. We were hardwired. We were hardwired to depend on God. And to depend on one another. That's the Christian community. And our dreams of self-sufficiency will eventually turn into nightmares if we do not humble ourselves and accept the grace that God has given us. And so I want to start with Matthew chapter 5, uh, verses 5 and 6. We've been starting in Matthew 5 on, on both of the uh, previous messages. This one is going to look at a couple of the Beatitudes. And if you're not familiar with the Beatitudes, the Beatitudes are, are the way that Jesus opens his Sermon on the Mount. And he does so in 
and he redefines who really is blessed. And it's interesting, when you read through the Beatitudes, there's eight of them. There's not one that says, blessed are the self-sufficient because they don't need anything from anybody. That one's not in my Bible either. In fact, if you read the Beatitudes as a whole, there is an emphasis or a, a, a value that is placed on humility, on being interdependent, on showing and receiving mercy, on, on the things that we'll talk about today in verses 5 and 6. So I'll read those to you. If you have one of our blue hardcover Bibles, you can turn to page 1501 there in the seats in front of you. If not, follow along in your in your version or your translation of Scripture. But, but here's what he says. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. And I want to look at those two verses, but I want to look at them in reverse order. I want to look at verse 6 first, and then we'll back up and look at verse 5. Because verse 6 is basically saying, blessed are those who desire righteousness more than anything else. When it says hunger and thirst, we have to move beyond an American version of hunger and thirst, where you feel hungry when you haven't eaten for three or four hours. That's not hunger. That's not hunger in the sense that many in the world, half the world, maybe uh, experience hunger. There's a different kind of hunger when you're not quite sure when the next meal's going to come. And it's been more than three or four hours since the last one. When it's been a couple days and you don't know, it could be a couple days more. That's a different kind of hunger. And we don't know as much about thirst here in America because we have free, clean drinking water in almost every public building. You can go and you can get clean water, water that will not make you sick, water that will not cause some illness to come into your body that you might even lose your life. And yet most of the world doesn't have that same privilege. And I've traveled internationally where you don't drink anything but bottled water because if you do, you will pay for it and you will wish you had not. And thirst is different when it has been hours or days since the last time you had a drink. And you're not quite sure when the thirst will come. That's, I believe, the kind of hunger and thirst that Jesus is talking about when he talks about blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They desire it more than anything else. They desire it more than position. They desire it more than status or reputation. Blessed are those who desire righteousness more than financial security or comfort or pleasure. Blessed are those who desire righteousness who hunger and thirst for righteousness more than material possessions or independence or anything else that we could put in that place, that the one thing we want more than anything else is righteousness. And Jesus said something about this a little later in the Sermon on the Mount. In verse 33 of chapter 6, he said, Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all this other stuff, all these other things will be added to you or will be given to you. And in that section, he's telling them, don't worry. Why do you worry about the clothes you're going to wear or the food you're going to eat? Because if your focus is on self-sufficiency and having enough for yourself, you will worry about what you're going to eat and you will worry about what you're going to wear and you will worry about where things are and how things are going. But if you seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and trust that everything else is going to be added to you, you don't worry about those things. The same way. You hunger and thirst for righteousness. And be reminded, we talked about this last week, the righteousness that we hunger and thirst for is right standing with God. It's not legalistic perfection. It's it's right standing with God. And that's why he could say, unless your righteousness exceeds that 
of the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll not enter the kingdom of God. He's saying unless your right standing moves beyond the external, where it looks really good, but inside it's filled with dead men's bones, unless it moves beyond the external to the internal, that you have right standing with God based on a relationship with Jesus Christ that you have entered into through faith and you are trusting in that and that alone for your salvation, that's the righteousness that inherits the kingdom of God. And he says, when we hunger and thirst for righteousness, when we hunger and thirst for right standing with God above all these other things, and we seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, then all this other stuff is going to be added to us. We're going to have what we need. And even if it seems like we don't, our eternity has been secured. So the little blip on the radar screen that our lives represent, and we may have to do without in that little blip on the radar screen, compared to the eternity where God has provided for us and brought us into relationship with him forever, and our eternity is secure, then we can rest in that, and we can trust in that, and we don't have to seek this self-sufficiency. You see, when we hunger and thirst for that righteousness of God, when we hunger and thirst for righteousness, we'll be overjoyed when we receive it. When we hunger and thirst for right standing with God, we will be overjoyed when we receive it. And if we don't, we won't. If we don't hunger and thirst for God and his righteousness, we won't be overjoyed when we receive it. And a lot of damage has been done with sort of a partial gospel that overemphasizes God's love and grace and mercy and underemphasizes our sinfulness and our desperate need of his love and grace and mercy so that people think, well, I'm okay, but I'll be better if I have Jesus in my life instead of realizing, no, I am not okay. I will be separated from God for eternity. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It will be hot and it will be dark forever. That's what I've earned. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is life and life eternal, life abundant, life that is rich and satisfying. And so when we understand our own desperate need for him and we hunger and thirst for his righteousness, then we're overjoyed when we receive it. But too many kind of embraced a half gospel that says, you're okay, you're not so good, but you'll be a lot better with Jesus, so invite him into your life, and he's got a wonderful plan, everything will be fine. Instead of, no, you have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, you will spend eternity apart from him if something drastic does not change. He has made a way out of his love and his grace and his mercy. If you receive that, if you hunger and thirst for that righteousness, then you will receive it. You will be filled, and you will be overjoyed. Verse 5, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek. And I know I've talked about this before, but I think meekness is one of the most misunderstood words in Scripture. It does not mean weakness. If you've heard this one before, then bear with me a minute. But meekness is the opposite, actually, of weakness. Weakness means to be ill or to be without strength or to languish. Meekness literally means strength, great strength, that has been brought under control, has been harnessed by another. It's a word that's often translated as gentleness in, uh, in the Bible. And so some examples of meekness would be a, a stallion that is extremely powerful, but has been harnessed and brought under the control of a skillful rider. And so that stallion still has all of its strength, still has all of its power, but it has been harnessed. That power has been brought under the control of another. 
Or you think of a father, think of a big lumberjack with a big beard, and he's big and strong, and he's wearing plaid, and yet he's gently caressing a little child's cheek. Tremendous power that has been brought under control. And so when we think about this, when we start to put all this together, and we think about hungering and thirsting for God's righteousness so that we would be filled, and and that we are blessed when we bring our strength and our power under the control of another, then that begs a couple of questions. If we think about Jesus' words, blessed are the meek, blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth, then you might want to ask yourself, what is my strength? What is my power? What is, what is the power that I have? What is the strength that I have? And power takes a lot of different forms. It doesn't just mean physical strength. It could be other resources that you have. It could be spiritual gifts that you have. It could be abilities that you have or experiences that have equipped you, given you influence over others. It could be personality. Some people's personality is a tremendous asset for the kingdom of God. And so think about what are my resources, what are my strengths, what are my powers? And that's the first question. The second question is, who's in control of those? Who's calling the shots for those resources, those strengths, those abilities, those powers? Is it me? Is it myself? Am I using them to become increasingly self-sufficient? Or have I turned that over to the care and control of another? Have I turned my abilities, my resources, my powers, my strengths, my spiritual gifts over to God and said, God, use them for your kingdom, or am I still trying to build my own little kingdom with my abilities and my resources and my influence? Because God says, one, blessed are the meek, those who have turned over, those who have invited Christ in and said, I'm going to give you control of my life. I'm going to turn the keys over to you. I don't want God to be my co-pilot. I want to be his co-pilot. I've always gotten a kick out of that one. God is my co-pilot. Really? You should get out at the next stop and switch seats. Let him drive that thing. You can just go along for the ride and figure out how it all is supposed to work. But there's tremendous power, and I meant to say this earlier, in willingly and consciously choosing to commit all of our lives, all of our will to Christ's care and control. That's the essence of salvation. That's when we say, I don't want to build the kingdom of myself anymore. I don't want to be self-sufficient anymore. I want to consciously choose to commit all my life and will to Christ's care and control. This is the third principle in the Celebrate Recovery Principles. It's the third step in a 12-step program, if you're familiar with Alcoholics Anonymous or Narcotics Anonymous, no real transformation can take place until we consciously choose to commit all of our will and all of our lives to Christ's care and control. And we stop playing the self-sufficiency game and start living in the Christ-sufficient world where he is sufficient and he is calling the shots. And there's a beautiful example of this in, in Paul's story. If we look at 2 Corinthians chapter 12, we see Paul talking about a time in his life when he became fully aware, fully convinced that it was not himself that was sufficient, but Christ who was sufficient. Maybe you've heard this story before. It's in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And if you don't know, the the Apostle Paul was an extremely gifted individual. He had an extreme 
uh, intellect and powers of persuasion. And he set the world on its head, essentially, in the decades after Christ's death. And some scholars have pointed to it and said, you know, he was a a once-in-a-generation intellect, once-in-a-generation project, the way I think he was the pen in God's hand. And God wrote all this through Paul's life. And, And Paul obviously had giftings, and he obviously had abilities, and he obviously had pedigree. And in this section that we're going to read, he, he's basically saying, if I was going to boast, I got plenty to boast about. I could boast about my lineage. I could boast about my education. I could boast about my experiences that I've had. I could boast about my sufferings, my accomplishments, even visions and revelations that God has given me. I can play the boasting game. But he says something really interesting here in verses 7 through 10 of 2 Corinthians chapter 12. He says, to keep me from becoming conceited, Because of these surpassingly great revelations, which he just mentioned, there was given to me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan, to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And you've probably heard this story, if you've been around church for most of your life, you've probably heard this a couple of different times in a different, couple of different ways. And, and I could spend some time kind of picking it apart and talking about what was the thorn in the flesh, and, you know, there's three or four different theories to that. I don't want to get bogged down in the minutiae of of what the thorn was or what was going on. I want to see the bigger picture here, that here was a, a person that had tremendous capacity, tremendous ability, tremendous resources. He had great lineage. He had great education. And he's basically saying, I don't boast in any of that. And I don't want to come, become conceited. And I don't want to, to be, become increasingly self-sufficient. He had more reasons to be or to, to seek self-sufficiency than most. But instead, he chooses to boast in the things that show his weakness. And I think Paul understood something that we should make sure we understand. That people connect with us through weaknesses. They admire our strengths, but they connect through our weaknesses. And when they, say, if they find somebody who's struggling with something, they say, oh, you too? Then there's a connection that's made, and there's a strength that's made. And when we, we lead with our weaknesses, and we lead with the, the, the things that we are not, It may not impress as many people, and it may not get us as far in the world around us, but in the kingdom of God, that is a perfect platform for God's strength, for God's ability, for God's power to be displayed. Your weakness, not your self-sufficiency, your weakness is the perfect platform to display God's power and grace. And that doesn't mean that we should lay you lead weak and pathetic lives. Don't, don't take this too far in the other direction. But if we are seeking only to convince ourselves and the world around us that we are self-sufficient, that we are the self-made, that we have everything we need and we did it on our own and we pulled ourselves up by our bootstraps, then we are missing opportunities to be a platform for God's grace and God's power to be displayed in us and to be displayed through us. 
I've never really understood the idea of being pulled up by my bootstraps. If I'm laying down and I have boots on, how am I going to pull myself up by my bootstraps? It doesn't even make sense. Can somebody explain that to me? Maybe I missed the analogy. One time I didn't know what it meant to look a gift horse in the mouth, and I mentioned that in a sermon. And several people told me, you know, it's checking to see how long the teeth are, and I, oh, okay, I get it. But it's an adventure in missing the point. If we live our entire lives trying to convince ourselves and everyone around us that we are self-sufficient, instead of being interdependent and allowing our spouse and allowing our friends and allowing the people around us to see the real us, to see the the areas where we fall short and to come alongside us in those areas and to encourage us and to strengthen us and to allow those areas to be a platform to display God's power and God's grace. You see, Paul recognized that only God's grace was truly sufficient. Only God's grace was truly sufficient. And he delighted in his weakness, not his self-sufficiency, so that Christ's power would rest on him. And he invites us to do the same. And this is not the American dream. I'm fully aware that this is not the American dream. To set aside self-sufficiency and try to live God-dependent and people-dependent lives. And yet that's the platform that the gospel flourishes on. And around the world in persecuted nations, in persecuted places, they are not trying to convince everybody that they've got it all together. They are allowing the gospel to flourish in and through their weaknesses and their need for each other and their interdependence. And I understand it. It's hard. I've struggled with this too. I I spent a lot of my life just trying to convince everybody that I had it all together. And when it finally stopped working was when I had to admit, no, I really don't have it all together. And the question that we face in those moments is, is he trustworthy? Is he trustworthy? Is he good? Is he powerful? And if I put my trust completely in him and not hold back some tactical reserve for myself, will I have enough? And will I be enough? And the answer is yes. He is trustworthy. He is good. He is powerful. And your identity in him is so secure and it is so enough that you don't have to hold anything back for yourself. And so I want to close. I want to go back to the story that we opened with. Remember our little girl and the string of pearls and the three nights? Well, the fourth night, her father comes in and sits down on the bed. And even before prayer, he can tell She's trembling, and her little lip is quivering. And he says, what's the matter, sweetie? And a chubby little fist comes out from under the blanket with a string of plastic pearls, and she says, here, Daddy, I want you to have this. I love you. I'm so sorry I didn't give it to you right away. And now he's crying, and a string, you know, tears are streaming down his face, and he says, oh, sweetie, thank you. Thank you for giving me your pearls. I know you love me. I've always known you love me. And he reaches into his pocket and he pulls out a case and he opens it up and it's a string of real pearls set by a jeweler on a silver strand. And he says, I want you to have this, sweetie. You can keep your other pearls too for when you play, but when you go to church and when you go to a special occasion, I want you to wear these. These are the real deal. These are the real Thing. 
And I can tell you every single time that I have surrendered something, whether it was a resource, whether it was a little bit of my reputation, whether it was my identity, every time I've surrendered something to God, He has given me something so much better in return. Or He's given it back to me. Whatever I gave Him, He's given it back to me with His blessing in order to accomplish His purpose every single time, whether I recognized it or not. Sometimes it took a while to recognize what I had received in return for what I had surrendered. You just can't lose with God. But you can trust Him. You absolutely can. You can trust Him to be kind. You can trust Him to be compassionate. You can trust Him to be generous. You don't have to be self-sufficient. You don't have to be enough on your own. You can bring everything that you have, all your strength, all your power, all your ability into his kingdom with open hands and say, it's all for you. Do with it what you will. It's not mine. It's for you. It's for your kingdom. And find that his grace absolutely is sufficient. And so as we close, as, as you are invited to respond in faith, I recognize that there are a number of different ways that you could respond in faith to this message. And I don't want to move past the reality that in a room this size with this many people, there may be someone here who's never accepted Christ as Lord and Savior, somebody who's never turned over their lives, never surrendered their life to Christ, is the language often says. And so if that's you, if that's your step today, then I want to encourage you. And if you've felt the Spirit tap you on the shoulder and reveal something to you that has been held back, reveal something that you've been you know, trying to build that case for your own self-sufficiency to release that, to surrender that, whatever the case may be, we grow and He grows in us when we respond in faith. Would you bow with me when we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the invitation to not seek our own self-sufficiency, but to turn our lives and our will over to you. To turn our resources and our abilities, even our personalities and experiences over to you. And to find that your grace really is sufficient, that, that we were never meant to graduate from it, that we were never meant to, to be self-sufficient or live self-sufficient lives, but that we can live, live lives of dependence upon you and upon your people, that we can be generous and kind and compassionate. So we pray, Lord, that your spirit would move in these next few moments and that it would call us to commitment, call us to surrender. And if there's one that, that has never received you as Lord and Savior, I pray that today would be the day of their salvation. They could pray a simple prayer that says, Lord, I need you. I am a sinner. I have fallen short of your glory. And I accept the gift of grace through the person of Jesus Christ. 
come into my life. Transform me. And help me to learn what it means to follow you. As we continue to respond, Lord, I pray that each and every one of us will, will come to an altar, we'll make an altar where we're seated, we'll reflect upon what we've heard, we'll reflect upon you, our, our rock and our redeemer. And if there's anything that has not been surrendered to you, Lord, that we would surrender it to you now. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.